art doesn't really matter to our culture and society, does it? Oh, it does indeed. Stay tuned. See why it's important. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Is art important to society? The Republicans of the 2020s would laugh and say, Oh, heck no, it's superfluous. Only something elitists care about. We should be focused exclusively on allowing simple, untethered market forces to shape society. That's what they would say. But when President Franklin Roosevelt confronted the economic and social disaster now known as the Great Depression, he not only invested federal dollars in infrastructure progress, he recognized how truly vital American artistic creations are to our cohesion and our essential social and cultural and national identity. So he created the Federal Art Project and the Federal Theater Project, which, of course, the right wing of the time hated and eventually destroyed. What about today? Oftentimes, art programs in public schools, as we all know, are the first to face the budget-cutting acts. And the economic realities faced by artists in the 2020s are indeed harsh, like our, not like our old, traditional, uniquely affordable artist colonies in city districts where the arts flourished. Remember them? Why is that? Well, largely because the rents are too high. In a recent New Republic article, our guest today, Ned Resnikoff, asks the question and answers it in his title, Want a thriving art scene? Build more housing. Thanks for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive, Ned Resnikoff. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Ned Resnikoff is the policy director for California YIMBY, Y-I-M-B-Y, a nonprofit dedicated to ending California's housing crisis. He was previously a journalist for MSNBC and Al Jazeera America, and later a policy analyst for the California legislature. I must say, so many of America's domestic problems today all come back to the desperate and growing need for affordable housing. So many problems are related to that. And man, have we gone in the opposite direction, in places where artists used to be able to live and thrive. And it's not just artists, uh, the, the familiar sense of artists, but one factor continuing uh, in the continuing wave of labor actions, including the Hollywood writers still on strike and teachers and hotel workers and in industries across the board, is once again housing costs. Well, again, thanks for being with us. I got to ask for starters, and I can guess the answer. What is YIMBY? Y I M B Y? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, YIMBY stands for Yes in My Backyard, and it's sort of an implied contrast to uh, NIMBYs uh, for Not in My Backyard. And the idea behind YIMBYism is is that a lot of a lot of the problems that we face in our cities today, uh, not just um, not just unaffordable rents and unaffordable housing costs, but economic inequality more generally. Uh, climate change, environmental devastation due to suburban sprawl. A, a, a lot of it comes back to the fact that we've just made it too damn hard to build apartments and dense housing in the areas where people want to live. Mm. And so YIMBY's 
advocate for uh, making it easier to build to build those homes, especially where people most want to live and where the housing is most desperately needed. And so at California Yimby, we focus on changing uh, state land use law in order to make that possible in California. Yeah, that NIMBY thing, it's its tough. There's a lot of it going around this country. It's a heck of a disease. But mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the writer's strike goes on and mm-hmm. on. And that's thats organized by the union SAG-AFTRA. It's, it's gone on a long time. It looks to be the longest-lasting such strike in uh, the writer's uh, history, in SAG-AFTRA history. Work stoppages, of course, are never easy on those people on strike. It hurts to not get a paycheck. That's that's asking a lot to ask people to continue to go on strike. What are the underlying motivating issues in that strike? Yeah, so there are actually uh, two strikes going on right now. There's there's the Writers, which is uh, the Writers Guild of America, and then SAG-AFTRA represents uh, screen actors and, and television actors. And they're they're both on strike, and for for pretty similar reasons. I I, I think there are a few issues going on here. Uh, one of them is the uh, just the sort of broken economics of the uh, the uh, world of streaming and the way that television and movies get distributed. The fact that instead of earning residuals on on syndication, for example, uh, television writers and television actors uh, often get virtually no cut of the profits from their work when it goes into streaming. Uh, there is also, I think, uh, a big story here about corporate consolidation. And I mean, uh, uh, overarching over all of this, I think um, two big stories that are touching a whole lot of the economy right now, but it, uh, in particular, uh, the WGA and, and SAG-AFTRA uh, workplaces are uh, the threat of AI. Uh, and, you know, the uh, studio right. executives have threatened to effectively replace a lot of writers and actors with with AI. And then the fact that it's a, uh, a very tight labor market right now, unemployment is super low. And so I, I think the, uh, the studios made a, a huge miscalculation here where they thought that because of the threat of AI, they had a lot of leverage over writers and actors, mm. but they don't because it's actually very hard to replace writers and actors. And it's especially hard to replace them with with real people who will be able to do the jobs that AI is is just not actually ready to do. And if you compare the housing of the uh, top executives of the uh, film corporations versus the housing for the uh, mere workers, the writers and the actors, uh, mm-hmm. that's a pretty significant difference. And I, you know, I, I do... Th- we may have some Republican, some Trumpist strength these days, but I I think the public recognizes that uh, the you know the the unfairness between the uh, oodles of cash that the top executives uh, rake in all the time versus the actors and writers who, as you say, don't get the residuals. And you know, if people knew how poorly they did, I, I, I think. I think time is on the side. I, I'm often wrong, but I think time is on the side of the of the striking people, and I I don't think the general public is is really aware of the role that housing plays in that Hollywood writers and actors uh, strike situation. I wonder if you could explain the role of of housing in that strike. 
So the two epicenters of the strike are are obviously Hollywood and then also New York, where uh, quite a few writers and actors live and right. where a lot of a lot of television is produced. And those are both very expensive cities. And they've been expensive for a while, but in in uh, the past several years in particular, they've gotten extraordinarily world historically expensive. And so that that was really what my article was about was the that that rent is just putting greater and greater pressure on the incomes and the financial stability of writers and actors. And especially with the way that compensation has changed in Hollywood because of things like streaming, they're not they're not really getting compensated in a way that allows them to do their profession full time and still pay rent and still have enough money left over for, you know, all, all the, all the things that make up a, a, a stable middle-class sure. lifestyle. And so I, I think uh, that those rent costs and, and the sort of growing pressure of the rent costs combined with the tight labor markets has made uh, a lot of labor unrest in, especially a place like LA kind of inevitable. And, and you see it because, uh, you also have a lot of labor actions happening in Southern California and the Los Angeles area in particular that have nothing to do with uh, Hollywood. You know, uh, hotel workers, right. uh, graduate student assistants at UCLA. Uh, I mean, it, everyone's really feeling the pressure from these housing costs. Oh, that that is for sure. They, it's just it's unbelievable. I, they, they used to be. I'm so old. I remember when we had a middle class in this country. Really, I mean, it actually was a middle class. It was large. Why? Why is it? Talk about why our media uh, only talk about the economic losses caused by strikes, but media giants like CNN and NBC don't bother to put in the resources and the time to figure out actually how strikes can benefit workers and society in general. What do you think about, what, to tell us about the motivation of CNN and NBC and those those big guys. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I haven't watched much of the coverage from uh, CNN or MSNBC uh, on the strikes. One of the, one of the advantages of no longer working in cable news is that I don't have to watch as much of it anymore. <laughs> uh, but I, I will say that I mean, the, you know, fundamentally, the um, the the news coverage that you that you get from, I, I think, especially a lot of national institutions, as as journalism has sort of consolidated over time, really does reflect. I don't think necessarily a, a, a liberal bias or a conservative bias, but but a sort of bias toward the um, the the sort of social milieu that a lot of the people who are able to make a very good living off of journalism come from. Mm -hmm. You know, if you if you look at uh, if you look at The New York Times, but this was is also certainly true of CNN or or NBC, uh, even a lot of the the reporters now come from from pretty privileged backgrounds. I mean, a good example of this is uh, Anderson Cooper on CNN is, is literally a Vanderbilt. And I think that's a that's a function of the fact that the the journalism world has gotten a lot smaller and a lot more a lot more competitive, and so people who generally have a have a leg up in life for one reason or another are are more likely to get one of those uh, dwindling number of jobs. And it's also true that uh, the the scramble for uh, those jobs is is tough, except in 
you know, the big uh, cities, the big markets uh, where they pay pretty well, they don't pay a lot in the other uh, lesser markets. That's that's for sure. And what would mm -hmm. and, you know, the arts people think, you know, the Republicans would say, oh, that's elitist stuff. You know, who cares about that? What would you tell someone who considers himself an average Joe or Jill driving in and out of a job he or she doesn't love every day, but has to keep doing it to survive. What does the arts and artists' ability to live and do their work matter to this person? You know, I, I think of what's happening to artists right now as, as kind of a leading indicator to for what what's happening to working people everywhere in these large cities. Uh -huh. You know, even if even if you're not necessarily a, a, a painter or a writer, there are there are so many people who uh, decide to choose a vocation over something that's just going to make them a lot of money. Uh, you know, uh, you know, good good example of this is you know, maybe more a little bit more adjacent to the arts is, is journalists. It's, we were just talking about journalism, mm -hmm. but I would also put. Um, you know, public school teachers and and nurses in that category, like oh. no one who's doing those jobs is doing it to get rich. Right. And so the more that we create cities where the the only way to actually live in them is to just go for the job that's going to make you fantastically wealthy, the more we lose really the critical human infrastructure that actually makes society function. Uh, you know, teachers, nurses, uh, reporters, public servants, social workers, uh, you know, uh, public transit operators, just like the, the people who actually hold a city together. Right. And it, it, it has always amazed me and lots of people that working people who, you know, get, get the short end of the stick and, and who, you know, the, the uh, unions are there for, uh, they, they tend to support and look up to the very wealthy people. They, I, I think they figure, well, I'm going to be super rich someday myself, and I don't want to have to pay taxes. And, you know, it's, they, they sit, they, they, they pit one group against another. When the reality is, and I think this is starting to happen in the U.S. these days with the, with the increased labor consciousness and activity, that people are maybe starting to recognize that, hey, working people, teachers, everything, janitors, whatever. We need them, and we need them to be able to survive, and we need affordable housing for really everyone, and it is important to us, and so the arts are, are part of that. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a unique aspect of democracy. Well, not so unique, really, just the ability of working people to survive. We're talking about uh, uh, strikes and union activity and why a thriving arts scene is important. And our guest today is Ned Resnikoff, who is uh, policy director for Yes in My Backyard. Uh, and he's written an article in the New Republic, Want a Thriving Arts Scene? Build More Housing. Yes, housing. It's, I'll tell you, it's the answer to so many different things. Going back, one of my favorite presidents, probably my favorite, is FDR. He made some mistakes, didn't support the Spanish Republic, but we'll leave that aside. What was it about the arts, and specifically theater, that FDR saw and considered in the national interest to invest in? How, what did he see that so many others since then have not seen? 
Well, you know, the the investment that he made in uh, in theater that the that the federal government made in theater under his administration through the uh, uh, WPA, that was that was a really small share of the overall WPA portfolio. It was a forty six million dollars out of about one point three billion dollars total. So. You know, in terms of in terms of the scale of the investment and and even the number of people it employed, it 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 wasn't that much. But I think I think it's really telling that this is one of the this is one of the aspects of the WPA's work that that people still really focus on when they tell the history of the New Deal. Part of that is because it generated a bunch of controversy at the time, where uh, you know critics critics said, "Why are you why are you giving money to?" you know, beatniks or whatever to yeah. just make, make art. But, but uh, I, I guess maybe this is a little bit before beatniks, but uh, you but know, it, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, but, but I think the, the sort of long cultural legacy of the WPA through, through theater, through writing, through the, um, you know, some of the great filmmakers like Orson Welles that came out of uh, the WPA theater projects, I think, shows the way in which even that that fairly small investment not only created jobs at the time and sustained a lot of livelihoods, but also has had this kind of lingering impact on our our culture. Mm -hmm. Sort of uplifting in general. And for those who may be interested, I, I, I will recommend a movie I saw many years ago, The Cradle Will Rock, uh, with Tim Robbins. It's about the, uh, the, the th- Federal Theater Project and uh, what happened to it. It's a good movie. I don't know if you've seen it, Ned. Uh, I, I am blessed to know plenty of artists where, where I live. I, but it's been tough. And, and, and it used to be said that uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, was, was good for artists. It was an artist community. Boy, it's not like that anymore. I've been here, you know, since the early '80s, and it is really tough. The members of the Screen Actors Guild have the advantage of organization. You write artists like American workers overall are mostly not unionized. Again, artists like American workers overall are mostly not unionized. They either practice their craft at a net loss are on the thinnest of margins. And I, the artists I know, yeah, they can talk about how thin that margin is. The housing crisis has devastated that margin. Please say more about that unique obstacle that artists face. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, are two things that are, are more true of artists than uh, for, for most other, most other professions. One of them is that it's, it's highly gig-based. So no one... Or practically no one draws a full-time salary painting. I mean, you don't really have the sort of uh, Renaissance-style patronage system for yeah. for artists. Uh, so it, it really is dependent on, you know, just patching together gallery openings, selling a few pieces here or there, uh, maybe maybe teaching on the side. And and the other thing is that um, you know a, a lot of artists, it's you know I'm I'm sort of lucky in that I'm, I'm a writer. So, uh, you know, for my, my, my art space is just wherever I can like find like a, you know, like a flat table to right. put my laptop or my notebook on. But if you're, if you're a visual artist, for example, then you need a, you need a studio space. You don't just need space to, to sleep and eat in. You need a space to actually practice your craft in, uh, or, or if you're a musician, 
you know, one of the one of the reasons I think why uh, rock music has kind of fallen on hard times in the United States is because with housing costs so high in a lot of our big cities, it's incredibly difficult not just to pay the rent as a working musician, but to to find uh, practice space, to find somewhere to to keep your drum set and to be able to play loud, amplified music without without bothering the neighbors. And that's, I must say, if people care about America's reputation and standing in the world, uh, the world doesn't love our militarism, uh, but it loves our arts. It loves our Hollywood, our rock and roll, our jazz. Uh, that you know, that's that's one thing that is valuable, clearly valuable about the American identity, and uh, it does the 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 arts shape. Uh, who we are. It influences and reflects society, both pushes society and reflects it at this, at the, kind of at the same time. And over the decades, artists have mirrored society's evolution. And we'll, we'll get to talking about rock, something I love. Uh, but there's, through the years, there have been movements like Dadaism, Surrealism, and Pop Art. Many Americans might see these movements as superfluous, caring nothing about them. But, I mean, people, probably a lot of people don't even know what these things are, Dadaism, Surrealism, and of course they know what pop art is, if they're old enough. But in what ways are they valuable? Yeah, I mean, I think elements of the avant-garde always will find their way into the mainstream. I mean, if, if you think about uh, surrealism or, or pop art or, or noise music. I mean, think about the, think about the, the incredible influence that the Velvet Underground has, oh, has yes. had on musicians all over the world. I mean, to, to name a band that uh, really came about in New York City at a time when rent was much lower. Not true. Uh, I mean, I think the, you know, the, the avant-garde, the, the margins, the places where outsiders create art, that's where the kind of experimentation happens that uh, allows artists to land on something that maybe really speaks to the, to the present cultural moment or how people feel in a, a way that a, a lot of uh, more, more traditional works maybe no longer can. And, and that stuff eventually does become part of the new cultural vocabulary for, for future generations. Yeah, and, and I've heard it said, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's certainly true that the Velvet Underground spawned hundreds of local bands, garage bands. I mean, and, and I, I will uh, proudly say uh, I saw them at the Boston Tea Party back in, what, 68 or so, back when that was in a low-rent district. That was a low-rent district part of Boston. And it was an old uh, synagogue, I believe. Uh, but I don't know if places like that could happen anymore. And to showcase them, would they get a, a, a showing, a viewing anymore? I don't know. I mean, they were really different <laughs> and, uh, you know, quite... Uh, Simplistic, I suppose, and minimalist, but uh, they, they've had a huge influence on rock music throughout the world. And as we, you know, as part of this issue of being able to afford to be an artist, being able to afford to take a chance and, and you know, 
push the envelope, as it were. And that's what, you know, why is pushing the envelope in the arts uh, so important, do you think? I think it's about creating room to explore explore ideas or feelings that that might be more commonplace than than most people realize but that aren't necessarily being expressed by the cultural mainstream of that time i mean fundamentally i think what what draws me to art what i find really powerful about it is is the sense that it's 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 a it's a act of of communication of engagement that that you know maybe makes you feel a little bit less alone if you have an experience that isn't being reflected elsewhere or or just kind of exposes you to the incredible incredible diversity of experiences and and perspectives that that are possible as a as a human being and i i I wonder about uh the, the the proliferation of I don't know what you call it. I'm, I'm an old guy, so I don't really know. But they, they're sort of like this angry rock that, that's out there these days. That's, that's pushing the envelope to some extent. And it's giving mm-hmm. people who otherwise don't have an outlet for for this uh, kind of thing to identify with and feel connected to. And there's something valuable about being connected to to a culture and a society. I mean, a, a culture doesn't happen, uh, you know, without people being connected. It, people have to be connected. And if they can't afford to do their arts, we all suffer. We all suffer. Uh, what, and I, I sense that, I may be wrong, and I, I'm not sure how you feel about this, that perhaps, I mean, a number of commentators have said that the American arts appeared to be going through a period of stagnation. Does that reflect the culture, do you think? I mean, and the right wing's culture war, that's some powerful stuff. It's its connecting with a lot of people. and It's got some major ugly energy. How is that affecting the climate for the arts, do you think? So I guess two questions mm-hmm. there. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that stagnation is real. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with the... Um, the sort of retrenchment or consolidation that's happened uh, in terms of opportunities to actually produce art that will be consumed by a large audience. So the the fact that, for example, even if you just compare uh, the the movie industry now to the to the '90s, there's been this kind of evaporation of mm-hmm. the the market for uh, you know mid mid budget movies for for adults. Like not you know not not like uh, you know, high, high art, uh, but, but, you know, movies that are, you know, movies that are, that are smart and, and a little bit more ambitious than just kind of, uh, you know, reiterating exactly what's been done before. And, you know, now it's, it's just kind of been totally swallowed by the, uh, the superhero shared universe uh, machine. Yeah. It it does seem to be the case that the big blockbusters, if you don't have a big blockbuster, then, doesn't get made. I don't. I don't even know. It's got to. I, I. I imagine it feels like hell of a lot more challenging to uh, mm-hmm. the writers and, and actors because they're they're not the big bu- uh, budget. What about the right wing yeah. culture war? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the things that I have found most 
most disturbing when it comes to the culture war over the past couple of years has been the proliferation of of book bans yeah. all over the all over the country. Amazing. I, I I really think that that is going to have a a lasting negative impact on on the arts in this country, and and you know also a lasting negative impact on a lot of kids who are not going to be exposed to to books or ideas that might have that might have changed their lives and changed the trajectory of their lives because those things are being removed from from libraries i mean i i, I think the i mean i can't really i can't really speculate with much accuracy about what it's what it's like to for example be like a, a queer teenager in in tennessee but yeah you know to to not have to to not have a single book in the school library that reflects your experience or or the you know just just the experience of being queer i mean I, that's got to be incredibly incredibly alienating and it just it's just sad and it hurts it hurts america it, we are a diverse country whether the right wing likes it or not and they obviously do not like it but we are diversity uh, makes us stronger, I do believe. And part of the arts is is authors. It's people writing books. And, you know, aside from the high rents, the the fact that uh, you know, with, with the social media these days, I know some young people, uh, and I, they, they don't really, they, not only do they not get exposed to it, but it takes, it takes time to read a book. And, you know, social media is just quick, 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 uh, what a TikTok, whatever the heck that stuff is. Uh, and that's that's makes it difficult for artists as well. And so to have to to have a, a, a housing situation that makes it even more difficult for the artists, for the writers, uh, ain't a good thing. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a unique aspect of democracy of our culture, and that is uh, the arts. Our guest, uh, uh, Ned, Ned Riznikoff, written an article in The New Republic called Want a Thriving Arts Scene? Build More Housing. And personal stories often communicate a message best. Politicians know that. They, sometimes they make them up. Please tell us about Nick Dyer. Yeah, so Nick Dyer is one of a couple artists who I, I interviewed for this article. Uh, they're a visual artist who uh, comes out of the the Baltimore art scene, went to went to art school there, uh, and and was able to uh, live very affordably in in Baltimore at the time, uh, but uh, eventually moved and and tried to get closer to. New York, which I, I think, you know, to a great extent is still the, the sort of capital of the American art world. And, uh, you know, a, a place where just being able to, to be there can really do wonders for your career as an artist. But unfortunately, if, if you're not a, a, an extremely well-established artist, then it's, it's mm. extremely difficult to make, to, to make the rent in New York. And so oh God, yeah. they ended up instead moving well upstate, I think a, a two or three hour drive away from Manhattan in, oh. in, in a town on the, the outskirts of, of Hudson. And, you know, it, it, it are still stretching their budget to pay the rent even, even there. And yet Manhattan, New York is the place, aside from, from LA and Hollywood, 
where a lot of these things happen. And I, I can't imagine what the heck the rents are these days in New York. I'm frankly glad I don't live there. But couldn't I? But you know, if, if the basis of what New York is, what New York's identity is, is so much with with the arts, with creativity, and you know, so many artists are working as as waiters throughout the city because they have to, and and dishwashers. Uh, it just it ain't right somehow. It's just not right. And I haven't heard any uh, politicians, any people running for federal office talking about, uh, I don't know if they would dare talk about, you know, investing in the arts and why, why it's important. But I don't, you know, I know FDR did. I don't, I don't remember other, well, actually JFK and, and Jackie Kennedy, I think, was talking about it. But it has, it's been a long time. I wonder, why do you think, you know, federal politicians would would shy away from it, not want to touch it? Or do you think they would? And maybe you know of some that, that are doing it. Yeah, I, I haven't really, I, I haven't heard many federal politicians talk about in, investing in the arts. And, and you know, I, I think I can understand some of the reasons why, which is that it, for this, for the same reason that whenever a uh, a city faces a municipal budget crisis, mm-hmm. generally libraries are are among the uh, the first things to get their budgets cut. God. It's you know the, I, this stuff um, is is just kind of de deprioritized when it feels like there are scarce resources and and you know to a certain extent I I can understand that that you know like a, a you know a, a publicly funded local theater program is is not necessarily critical infrastructure when there's also people who need need housing or or just like need need a subsidy just to be able to eat for the for the month uh but i think i think part of the part of the mistake we've we've made and and you know part of part of what uh i really work against in my in my day job at uh at California Yimby is, is this kind of zero sum mentality, this idea that we can't actually provide uh, not just a sort of like a decent standard of living for, for everyone, but also uh, invest in, in positive sum uh, endeavors. Yeah, the arts really do lift a society. They may not be as important as fixing a crumbling bridge and things like that, but... It is important, I, and and you know again it, it lifts society up, and I, I think it it has the effect of, of rippling out and and making increasing pride perhaps in in who we are and feeling like a sense of confidence that this is who we are, we can do it. Ah, that may be, you know, as John Lennon said, you may say I'm a dreamer. Uh, why did uh, why was it said to you? Do you think? I think a lot of art. And actually, Nick Dyer said this. They said, I think a lot of art is knowing people. People like to pretend it's not. But that's part of it. What, what did they mean? Yeah, so they were talking about why it was uh, detrimental to their to their career as an artist to not be able to live in New York. And this is one of the this is one of the really great things that that cities do for us, not just for for artists, but for everyone, is that there there really is a lot to be gained when you take people who are all working on different aspects of a of a shared project and allow them to 
be in community with each other and and yes. bounce off of each other. And you know, in in sort of uh, econ policy wonk speak, it's called the you know the agglomeration effect yeah. of cities. Huh. Uh, it, it you know I, I think it's produced a, a lot of a lot of great art uh, throughout the history of civilization. But but even more tangibly, it's it's a really important driver of uh, economic growth and the and the sort of uh, yeah the, the the sort of wealth creation that that benefits everyone. And, you know, when we when we make cities so expensive that 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 doesn't happen, that these sort of professional or artistic communities aren't able to organically emerge in in different cities, then we actually end up uh, foregoing a lot as a result. Yes, yes, it's true. And I'm thinking about also, you know, as as Nick said, it's you know, it matters who you know. I'm thinking about the galleries getting into the, you know, 57th Street galleries or whatever it is. Uh, you know, it, it, you, I can't help but think that you have to, well, you don't have to, but boy, it sure makes a difference if you know people or don't know people. And again, that's not the way it's supposed to be, but that's the way it is. And uh, uh, it's it's not easy. It's, it's tough for artists these days. That's for sure. Tougher than it used to be. And giving the challenges of trying to make a living as an artist, various different kinds of arts. Are there ever collectives, artist communities, shared living situations, uh, artist retreats that are funded perhaps by corporate interests? Uh, what, what are the challenges uh, of those simple, that, that simple affordability would avoid? What about these, the challenges to, to having these communities that, I mean, it seems like there used to be uh, things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, there there definitely are communities like that around. I in some very areas. So, um, you know, the uh, example that that Nick provided from when they were still in Baltimore is is these uh, large warehouses where uh, uh -huh. you know a number of a number of artists all all lived in a warehouse and paid maybe a hundred dollars a month in rent. Uh, so that that exists in places. I think I think the the challenge with a lot of those types of communities is that it it works quite well for uh, young people just starting out. But living in living in a large shared warehouse situation necessarily give you the opportunity to, for example, start a family. Oh, true. And I think that's a real that's a real challenge. Is that you know there. Are, yeah, you, know, you can make certain sacrifices when you're when you're younger to live in a big city, and and you know, God knows, I certainly did. Right. That are are much less palatable as you as you start to as you start to get older and and yeah. think about think about those things. The other the other thing, and and this is I, I think even more serious, is that for some of these warehouse communal living situations, they they're often operating in a uh, kind of gray area when it comes to, to building codes and, and basic safety. And, yes. you know, this is, this is very much at the forefront of my mind because, uh, you know, just not far, not far away from where I live in, in, I live, I live in the East Bay and in Oakland, you have the, uh, the ghost ship disaster where, uh, you know, you had this large co-living situation that was, you know, affordable, but, but just plainly unsafe. And, there was a fire there where a, a, a lot of people lost their lives. Yes. And so 
I mean, to me, that's just an example of when you, when you create an environment where the only way where people can get cheap rent is to sacrifice basic safety. That's, that's really, that's, you, you really put yourself at, at risk of some terrible things happening. Oh, that is for sure. That was an incredible fire. And that really illustrated it. And I wonder, you know, if uh, that's been addressed with the, the problems that caused that uh, fire with, with high rents continuing, that people, especially younger people, are still going to look for uh, cheaper places like that. And uh, people die. Let's face it. I mean, yeesh, that's, that was awful. You write that when, when high rents smother nascent art scenes, they also stymie the process through which American popular culture refreshes itself. That's a good quote. Tell us about the, what process you're talking about, please, and why is that important of refreshing itself for American culture? Yeah, so we were talking about this a little bit earlier when we were talking about the ways in, in which avant-garde or, or groups like the Velvet Underground start to permeate the cultural mainstream. I mean, it's, it's you know, creating, um, creating affordable spaces where communities of, of outsider artists can, can practice their craft uh, makes, it allows for zones of experimentation in the arts that you, you don't necessarily get at, for example, a, a major Hollywood studio. But that, but that stuff does um, does filter out and 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 does start to influence other artists who are who are closer to the cultural uh, mainstream, and that's and that's how you get. I mean, you know, there are a lot of factors that go into the the production of of great art, but I, I really believe that that's part of the part of the process that produces art for a mass audience that that speaks to people in a way that that other things they've encountered might not necessarily speak to what they're going through today. Uh, so true. And, you know, just reflecting their their emotions. And pe there's a hunger for that. There is real hunger for uh, art. Mm -hmm. To see artists who are saying what you feel inside of you. And, uh, yeah, that that's always been the case, I think. And let's, let's focus on New York City a little bit. There's, I mean so many different aspects of it. There's LA and there's New York. Greenwich Village used to be an oasis of artist residences in the early to mid 20th century. Huh, not anymore. I can't imagine what the rents are. There were a number of salons where artists and intellectuals came together and creativity really flourished. Tell us about the legendary Chelsea Hotel part of that story? And if so, in what ways uh, did that serve uh, to, to develop and uh, uh, breathe life into artists? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to start by saying I, I, I certainly don't want to romanticize New York in the 1970s. I mean, that was a city. Yeah, true. That was, a, <laughs> you know, in, in many ways, a, a very dangerous place to live compared to now. I mean, yes. you know, my, my, my parents lived in New York in the, in the late seventies. And so I've, I've heard, I've heard some stories. Yeah. Um, but I mean, one, one problem that the city did not have at that time was the uh, housing crisis that it has now. And, at, at, you know, part of that was that there were a lot of uh, low cost housing options, including these, uh. um, you know, single room occupancy 
living situations or, or, you know, uh, long-term hotels and, and the hotel Chelsea is a, is a good example of that where it was a, a fairly low cost uh, living situation where, uh, you know, p- oftentimes people didn't necessarily stay for, for a long time, but were able to cycle in and out as they were uh, working on getting themselves established. And, you know, this is a, this hotel in particular, uh, you know, at different times, I mean, just, just to name three of the, the people who lived there at various points, uh, Patty Smith, yes. uh, Alan, Alan Ginsburg, Dylan yeah. Thomas. Wow. Uh, I mean, it was the, the hotel was memorialized in a, in a Leonard Cohen song. Huh. Uh, I, I mean, it really, it, it really does have this amazing, uh, this amazing place in American cultural history. And, you know, as I was writing this, as I was writing this piece, I went back and I, I reread some of uh, Patty Smith's memoir, Just Kids, about uh-huh. about New York in the 60s and 70s and her her friendship with with Robert Mapplethorpe. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, she talks about the two of them splitting a room at the at the Hotel Chelsea. Uh, this is probably in the the late 60s, early 70s. And the their rent was fifty five dollars a month. Which, you know, you 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 need to you need to adjust that right, for inflation, but, but still, but, but still, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, even if it's ten times what it was, that's pretty darn cheap for for New York City. Uh, mm-hmm. For those who may have again just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking about the arts and why they're important and. Rents are too high. The rents are too high. Our guest today is uh, Ned Resnikoff, who uh, has written an article in the New Republic, Want a Thriving Arts Scene? Build More Housing. Previously a journalist for MSNBC and Al Jazeera America. And getting back to to New York, one of the eh, perhaps seedier sides of the city was the, the Lower East Side, where there were a number of clubs which displayed real artistic explosion uh, CBGBs, I guess, was one of them. Tell us about them, please, and 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 some of the now famous musical groups to emerge from there. Yeah, well, um, I mean, CBGB is a you know kind of a, a huge a huge part of the history of of right. rock and in particular in particular punk and and art rock in in America. Uh, I, I mean, one of one of the things I discovered well. Uh, researching this this piece was that I think CBGB opened its doors in 1973, so so pretty much exactly 50 years ago, and that was the same year that uh, hip hop was born in the Bronx. And so if you if you ah. just think about both those things happening in the same year in the same city, I mean that's that's just an incredible moment for sort of musical fertility. Uh, and, and, you know, just to talk about a couple of the bands that came out of CBGB, we were, we were talking about Patti Smith earlier, but I, I also have to give a shout out to a couple of my favorite bands who, who really uh, came from, from the CBGB surrounding scene. One of them was the, uh, the Talking Heads and the other one was, was television. And, you know, I, in, in the piece, I talk a little bit about uh, the New York indie rock scene of the of the early 2000s it, it it's funny how these things kind of rhyme because uh, talking heads and television in particular i think were both very influential on on various bands that were 
were really important 30 years later in that in that early aught scene. Right. And it's uh, stop making sense is a big hit again. I don't exactly know why, but from the from the mm-hmm. talking heads and uh, yeah, Tom Verlaine and television, uh, great stuff. That and of course the Ramones came out of there as well. I believe mm-hmm. uh, some oh, v- yeah. very influential stuff. Um, and if you, I I rarely go to New York uh, anymore, but new residential skyscrapers fill the Manhattan horizon now. They're really tall and thin. It would freak me out. I could never live there. In what ways is that phenomenon affecting new opportunities for renewal of the arts, these incredible skyscrapers? So New York is a really big place. And I think that these skyscrapers, because a lot of them dominate the skyline kind of dominate the visual field in, in particular neighborhoods or especially one particular borough. It's, it's created this impression that a lot of new housing is going up in New York. But when you actually look at New York overall, that's, that's not the case. So I, I looked up some, uh, some research from the citizens budget commission in New York and between 2010 and 2018, uh, employment in New York, so so uh, jobs in New York grew by 22%, but the housing supply grew by 4% over the same period. So even though there are there are some uh, uh, you know a handful of really tall skyscrapers going up, overall, and and it's even worse when you look not just at New York City but at the surrounding suburbs in in Long Island and Connecticut. Uh, there, there's really, in aggregate, very little new housing being built. And so I, I understand why it, it can sometimes feel like if you're in certain areas that, uh, you know, there's just all this building going on everywhere. But if you, if you zoom out and look at the entire city, we've got a big problem. And we actually do need to build a, a lot more housing in the city. Yes, housing has to be. Housing is the answer to so many problems across the country, not just this one. But it's it's just so. I mean, there are places that where there's a, a homeless problem, which is becoming uh, more uh, pronounced. Uh, sometimes what goes on is well, the police just sweep the streets and throw these people in jail. But what about housing? Housing. You know, people need mm-hmm. a place to live. It's not real complicated, but it's not happening. I got. I wanted to ask about Philadelphia. How did? Why did Philadelphia become a haven of sorts for artists? And what became of that? And tell us, please, about Nick Polizzi's experience there. I hope I pronounced that last name right. Yeah, I think it, I think it's Polizzi. Uh, Polizzi. Although I'm not okay. I'm not 100 sure. Probably um, you're right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Philadelphia is a more affordable city than New York, and it, it used to be even more affordable. And so part of my part of my contention in the piece is that there's been a real shift in the center of gravity in uh, the indie rock, especially on the East Coast, from from New York to Philadelphia. I mean, if you if you just look at uh, you know 15 years ago and compare it to now, 15 years ago the the sort of young hot indie rock bands were the Strokes, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, uh-huh. LCD Sound System, TV on the Radio, like all all New York acts. And and now uh, the scene is more dominated by groups like Japanese Breakfast, uh, Lucy Dawkins, who of course is part of Boy Genius, uh, Kurt Vile, and those are those are Philadelphia bands. Uh-huh. And 
I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that for a while, at least it was, it was much easier to uh, be, be an artist and, and maybe have a part-time gig to, to pay the bills and, and be able to, you know, li- live pretty, pretty cheaply in a, uh, you know, as a fairly central neighborhood of, of Philly. And, and, you know, that's kind of the world that, that Nick Polizzi came out of. Uh, he uh, has a, a noise rock act that he's the uh, front man for Perling Hiss that, that got its start in maybe the, the mid aughts at kind of the emergence of this, this newer Philly indie rock scene and kind of got to see that whole trajectory where the, you know, the city started to get more expensive because uh, in large part, because the the housing crisis in New York was creating all this population pressure. People were getting priced out of New York and moving down to Philadelphia. Uh And then, uh, you know, uh, uh, Polizzi got uh, priced out of, mm. of Philly, and he actually is now living back in his hometown, one of the one of the suburbs of Philly. Oh, and I I am reminded of uh, well, Philadelphia has a long tradition of uh, promoting rock and roll, going back to bandstand. Mm-hmm. That came out of Philadelphia, and a lot of good music. Uh, and good culture has come out of Philadelphia uh, through the uh, mid-20th century. And the the right is a political and cultural factor these days, no question about it. This culture war is some tough stuff. And they find it really useful to pit people against one another by groups. You know, there's racism, sexism, you know, I mean, LGBTQ+, you know, they, they want to divide us. Arts, on the other hand, fosters community. The arts establish a shared identity and sense of belonging among diverse groups. How is that a challenge to the right, which is now enjoying such political and cultural power? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think art is fundamentally kind of unruly. <laughs> and yes. that it... <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it, it, it just... You know, it, it creates a lot of it creates a lot of room for for difference and for different modes of expression or different ways of being that I think can be, you know, in, in some cases, uh, uh, some potentially somewhat unsettling or uh-huh. even or even kind of disturbing. Uh-huh. And I, I for that kind of difference and and reflecting reflecting different experiences can be uh, very Describe. very threatening to yes. a movement to a movement that you know to a to a large extent is is focused on um, uh, you know dictating like a, a certain a certain way of of being a being a person in the world yes indeed and and they forget that art is not supposed to be soothing it is it can be disruptive, and it's never supposed to be soothing. Well, as as you know, the New York indie rock scene circa the turn of the millennium isn't coming back. But if the city reigns in its housing crisis, think of the new artistic movements that America's largest city could incubate. Ugh. Think of what those movements could give to the rest of the country and to the world. And along those lines, what can people do? I mean, it's tough for municipalities to create affordable housing. The federal government can do it. So a couple questions in there. What Tell us about this 
uh, imagined uh, better New York could do that, that it could incubate this new artistic movement and, and what people can do? Yeah, I mean, I think that New York is always going to be uh, an incredibly desirable place to live for yes. a lot of people. And a lot of people. <laughs> I think that creating creating room for as many people who want to live there and, and you know, creating room for even even greater, greater diversity, uh, diversity of background, diversity of ideas of expression in New York, like really incredible really incredible new artistic movements could emerge from that as as to the question of what of what people and what cities can do it is it is true that when it comes to when it comes to subsidizing housing and and subsidizing right. rents right. uh there is there's very little that compares to the power of the federal government Absolutely. to yes. to invest in things like uh housing choice vouchers also called section 8 vouchers at at scale but there's a lot that cities and neighborhoods could be could be doing differently uh and and you know primarily it just comes down to removing barriers to building housing and and in particular multifamily housing in the places where where people want to live and so i would say you know to people who want to to do something uh you know start start going to your local uh planning commission meetings or or community board meetings and and you know, when there's a, a proposal to build some more apartments in your neighborhood, stand up and say, um, you know, I, I would actually welcome more neighbors uh -huh. because that's something that uh, not a lot of people do. And uh, for, for a long time, people who don't want new neighbors, who don't want to live near apartments or affordable housing have, have kind of had a monopoly in those yeah, meetings. True. They have. Well, t which leads us into the last question, Yimby. Uh, there must be some website people can go to if they want to do something about it and say, yes, in my backyard. Yeah, so um, if you're based in California, then I recommend going to C-A-Y-I-M-B-Y.org. That's, that's our website, and there's, there's lots of resources there for, for how to get involved in your community. Uh, you can also uh, just type in type in Yimby in the name of your hometown or state. There are ah. there are little groups all over the country at this point, uh, all over the world to to an extent. Um, and there's also the uh, the welcoming new neighbors network is a is another place you can ah. look, which is uh, this great uh, this great organization that started up in the past couple of years to. Uh, connect different uh, India uh, Yimby activists all over the country and help them kind of uh, share ideas and and lessons learned. Oh, so much improvement we can do if we just uh, you know set our minds to it and uh, and think about uh, what's good for for us all and what's what's possible and not building walls around us, <clears throat> but welcoming uh, people and it makes us richer. It makes us all richer. Hey, thank you so much. Very, very interesting conversation. Good, good work uh, that you're doing there. Ned Resnikoff, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive and for the work that you do. My pleasure. Thanks, Bert. People working eight hours a day and 40 hours a week to summer third job. Women can't afford to take care of their children. Feed the children breakfast, lunch and dinner. Feed the children breakfast, lunch and dinner. Feed the children breakfast, lunch and dinner. Feed the children breakfast, lunch and dinner.
If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.